Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Barbara Ferris. She's a retired health education teacher who lives in Cache Valley. Till March of this year, she was in Zambia with the Peace Corps Dreams Program. She joins us today to talk about her time in Africa, her exciting adventure leaving Zambia and returning to the United States when the coronavirus pandemic began, and her concerns for her friends in Zambia. Barbara Ferris is back home now and out of quarantine. We're going to talk about the culture and current situations in Zambia and much else. Here's my conversation with Barbara Ferris. Well, maybe uh, just to start, uh, give us a little background on on you. I think you uh, have, have taught uh, school, right? Yeah, so I taught health education in Cache County School District for 32 years, which I don't know how that happened. Yeah, 32 years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I googled it. it. I googled your name. Came up with a story from the Herald Journal about uh, sex education. Was that part of your? Yes. Or the, yeah. You taught there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So that was one part of of the curriculum. You know, a, a drug education and nutrition information and mental health stuff. So that was just one. And then the sex education stuff. That was one component of the unit or the class that I taught. Okay. So now you were, uh, you, you emailed us this, your story, and so that's how we knew about it. So we're glad to have you tell this for our listeners now. Uh, so you were in Zambia, as I understand it. Uh, and yes. what, what were you doing? You were with the Peace Corps. What were you doing? Um, I was actually in a special Peace Corps um, program called Peace Corps Response. And that actually started in the 1990s, I think around 93. And it was developed for returning Peace Corps volunteers. So someone who had already been in the Peace Corps for two years, they were asking them to come back and do kind of special programs. And then sometime, I want to say around 2010 or so, 2013, they opened it up to other people. And for me, it just seemed like such a great thing because it was only, it's a one-year program versus 27 months. And um, Zambia was good because I didn't have to learn a language. The official language there is English. Um, so that's kind of what drew me to Zambia. And then the program itself was pretty interesting. It's um, it's a response pro- well, it's a response program, but it's a it's called Dreams. And what Dreams stands for, and I had to look it up because I couldn't remember. It stands for Determined, Resilient, Empowered, AIDS-Free, Mentored, and Safe Women. And then it's it's a PEPFAR program, which was George W. Bush's program to prevent the spread of HIV. Okay. So, so yeah. Uh, so so tell, tell us, uh, first of all, that people may not know where Zambia is in, in Africa. Yes, it is in southern Africa. It's north. So um, South Africa is on the very bottom of the continent, and then above that, on the east side of the continent is Zimbabwe, and then right above that is Malawi and Zambia. Okay. So it's it's sort it's a landlocked country. You know, it's right in the middle of the continent, but on the southern tip of the continent. Mm-hmm. Did, had you known much about Zambia before you went? Nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> which which I think yeah. would would describe a lot of us. Right. Not much. Um, so yeah. So you were in a town called uh, Kitwe. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Uh, tell yeah, us, tell um, us, tell us about Kitwe. Go ahead. Uh, tell us about it, Kitwe. It, it's the second largest city in Zambia. So it was a city. I was not in a village like you'd think a typical Peace Corps volunteer would be. Um, we had, well, Peace Corps won't let Peace Corps volunteers drive, and because I guess they figured out somewhere along the line that was the leading cause of death for Peace Corps volunteers. So they they won't let you drive. But so we had a taxi that took us places. And we ended up using the same man all the time. Um, I had a colleague that was there with me. And it is a big, sprawling city, probably about the size of Ogden. That's my guess. Mm. What uh, so, what kind of is it? Um, a poor nation? Uh, not so poor? What, what, what's the situation in Zambia? Yeah, it's definitely a developing country. Um, it has a lot of very rich people and an incredibly huge amount of very poor people, not a lot of middle class. The people that we worked with professionally were probably middle class. You know, they were educators. They were, um, they, they had been to college, um, but there was also a lot of poverty. And, you know, and, and I only saw cities, so my, 
I think in the villages it's, it looks a little different because, you know, they're growing their own food. And, and so they, they may be poor, but they still have a lot of food. In the cities, it's, it's quite different. There, there are homeless people. There are homeless kids. They have a huge problem with um, orphans where both parents have died of HIV or some other illness and have nowhere to go. There's no safety nets. There's no Social Security. There's no, there's no safety nets. So that's, that was pretty interesting. So, uh, so HIV continues to be, uh, um, I guess, a, a problem, a big, big yeah, factor? Yeah, mm-hmm. especially apparently between women between the ages of 15 and about 24 or 5. Mm. And there's a wide variety of reasons why that's true. Um, so what they're doing is they, they're working towards lowering, lowering those infection rates. So what were you uh, specifically doing there, the part of the DREAMS program? What well, we were doing was we were putting together um, teacher conferences is about the easiest way to explain it. So we would organize these conferences. Zambia has an incredibly well-run comprehensive sex education through their schools. Um, the problem is, is the teachers haven't been trained. So basically we were training the teachers on comprehensive sex education, and it is really good. They do not have traditional health classes like I taught. They they run these this information through other classes. They they have religion classes. It's a Christian country and um all the students have to take religion classes throughout their whole twelve years of schooling. So they run them through the religion classes, the home economics classes, um, the social studies classes and then the, the biology classes. So we were training those teachers how to teach the comprehensive sex education. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned uh, trying to reduce infections of HIV. Uh, other problems they're trying to counteract? Uh, yeah, they have a huge problem with tuberculosis. Um, so that's that's one thing they're they're continually working on. Um, they ha- they do have universal health care. That's probably not the right term for Zambia, but that's basically what it is. So everyone is covered. It might be you have to wait in line at a clinic for hours and hours and hours to get in to see somebody, but but healthcare is available to people. So tuberculosis was probably the biggest one that was a problem. Malaria is a huge problem, and so you know they're trying to get people to put the nets around their beds and take the anti-malarial medications, but it it costs money. So mm. a lot of people weren't weren't able to afford those drugs. And before we tell your exciting story of, uh, you know, the, the your flight <laughs> from Zambia, um, I, I don't know if you keep in touch with, with folks. On top of the problems you've been talking about, now I expect COVID-19 has come to Zambia. Yes, it has. And the last I heard, and it's been a couple of weeks, that there were 700, around 700 infections in the country. So, and I don't, I'm not really sure how many people are in the country. Yeah. So yeah, that so probably doesn't help much, but it's a, it's a, the places I that I experienced were very crowded. Mm-hmm. Lots of people on the buses, lots of people on the streets. So, uh, and for the people you talk to, are they, is government taking measures or what's? Uh... Oh, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is what's interesting between them and us. When we got to Zambia on February second, they took our temperatures coming into the country, and. Um, everywhere you go, there were places where you could, um, like you go to the, the supermarket, you could get wipes and wipe off the, the counters or those carts. And, um, people in Zambia eat with their hands a lot. And so there are hand washing stations everywhere, every restaurant. I mean, everywhere we went, there were hand washing stations. So we were, we were washing our hands right when we got there. And um, that the the country coming coming out of the country, they also took our temperatures. But we, that was kind of interesting to us because we didn't, you know, we didn't really know why they were doing that going into the country. And I I'm not really sure if that's something that they always did or was it was because of COVID. Hmm. In fact, you were skipping ahead a little bit, but uh, you said the the first place, at least on this trip that we're talking about, that didn't take temperature, I think, was in Washington D.C. The Dulles. Yes. That yeah. was the very first place. Which was a, a little striking to you, I think. You right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was pretty interesting because we, we, and we had to stand in customs for about an hour with, I don't know, three or 400 other people 
you know, two feet away from each other. So it was, yeah, they, they didn't ask us. They had, they had us fill out a paper on the airplane saying, you know, do you have any of these symptoms? Have you been with somebody that, you know, has COVID and they didn't even ask us for those papers. I still have it Mm. with me. No, I thought that was really interesting. Of course, they could have been, I guess, scanning, you know, but without your knowledge, but uh, to, to, but they didn't ask you for your temperature. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Barbara Ferris. She's a retired health education teacher who lives in Cache Valley. And until March of this year, she was in Zambia with the Peace Corps Dreams program. We're hearing her exciting adventure, uh, leaving Zambia, returning to the U.S. as the coronavirus pandemic began. And we'll get into talking about Zambia and the, the friends that she left behind there, concerns for those friends, and much else. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cash Grand Fondo bike ride, July 10th and 11th. Modifications to comply with state guidelines are in place, with small rider groups starting over two days to properly distance. Registration information available at cashgrandfondo.com. This is M. Capito, an integrative psychotherapist with ideas for becoming more resilient. Resilience is the space between what's happening and our response. Without that space, we're reduced to regrettable knee-jerk reactions. The foundation of resilience is mind-body wellness. How well do you function when you're sleep-deprived? Add in hunger, and most of us become ticking time bombs. We have three everyday opportunities to preserve this foundation. First, sleep. We often sacrifice this critical restorative period for meaningless streaming and scrolling. Willpower runs out. So choose a firm bedtime now and turn off screens and work an hour before. Second, exercise. It takes at least 30 minutes of daily exercise to detox our bodies from stress. Try walking outside for just 10 minutes after each meal and build from there. Third, nutrition. We're surrounded by quick foods packed with saturated fats and sugars that trigger dopamine and therefore cravings and fatigue. One small action now adds up. Perhaps purge your kitchen of junk, limit eating out, or start eating vegetables every day. Start where you feel inspired, building up a healthy routine and your stress resilience. This tip is brought to you by UPR's Project Resilience. To learn more about the project and explore more resiliency tips, visit upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with Barbara Ferris. She's a retired health education teacher. She lives in Cache Valley. Until March of this year, she was in Zambia with the Peace Corps Dreams program. She's talking about her time in Africa, her Exciting adventure leaving Zambia, returning to the United States when the coronavirus pandemic began. And we'll get into talking about her concerns about her friends in uh, Zambia, the effect of the pandemic on the economy there, and uh, talk about some specific uh, friends that she left behind there. Uh, Barbara Ferris is back home now out of quarantine and uh, is telling us her story. March 14th, when when you got the word, right, that they're going to evacuate you, uh, or at least you have the option of leaving. How long had you been in the country at that point? Uh... Well, I, I know I was there for 48 days total. So, you know, it was probably day 45 or so. No, not that, but maybe about day 40, because it took about a week for, for them to get us out of the country after they told us they were going to evacuate us. Um, so, yeah, so I had been there about 40 days. So you um, were you aware, of the, I expect you were aware, of the, the coronavirus pandemic sweeping around the the globe. Um, what, what was the attitude in Zambia at that point? Um, well, people weren't really talking about it too much. I was getting information from my my family. My sister sent me the picture of the the no toilet paper grocery store, and I'm thinking, what in the heck is going on? <laughs> and and so we had. I remember hearing about it. I guess before I left for Africa for Zambia. Um, but not really thinking much about it because, you know, you know, we, we've dealt with these things before and we just dealt with it and everything was fine. So I didn't really think much about it. And then 
my my colleague that I was with got sick, and we went to a clinic. She and it's interesting because she was showing kind of some of the same symptoms. Like she was, she had a fever, she couldn't breathe, and it's like okay, but I didn't put it together. And this is probably around March tenth, and we went to the clinic, and a, a, a young man came in who was obviously very sick. He was very feverish. And I I kind of, I'm not a germaphobe at all, but I kind of got up and moved away from him because I thought, hmm, yep, I think I'm good. But they weren't having people wear masks if they came into the clinic sick at that point. I'm sure they are now, but at that point they weren't. But my colleague didn't didn't have COVID. She had bronchitis, so that mm. was a good thing. Um, yeah, I, I do remember early, at least specifically early on. I, I had you know <laughs> talk to friends. You, you get a little cough. You whatever it is, you think, oh no, it might be COVID. But yeah, um, yeah, and, and probably still in a still panic. Out. In a panic, yeah, exactly. Um, so really, things changed very fast as they did i think uh, you know in the in in the us as, and in utah I remember things changing really fast as well in terms of response so march 14th you write that you got information peace corps headquarters that you had the option of leaving and then the next day an evacuation order yeah it was within about 10 hours and i remember calling my colleagues cuz the five of us went at the same time so we got pretty close cuz we you know we had training together and we we roomed together and in a in a little lodge uh, hotel thing, and I remember contacting all of them, going, "Did I just read that right? What is going on?" And and they they were just it felt like to us that they were just dribbling out information. I'm sure they were scrambling because they've had the Peace Corps has had evacuations before, but not every single you know it'd be little tiny evacuations, not every single person volunteering the whole world was coming home so they i'm sure they were scrambling but it was it was mind-blowing because we literally had about well at first we had about 24 hours to get packed up and and get ready to go they were going to come pick us up but they ended up having delay to delay it a day for whatever reason i can't i don't really know the reason why they had to delay it so we did end up having a little bit more time to say goodbye to the zambians we had met and had been working with so that was really nice so you got about 24 hours. What uh, you, you say goodbye, right? Uh, what, I guess it, I was interested to read. Uh, you're writing the story. You there's some practical things you have to do. Close out bank accounts, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Go one last time to this Indian restaurant that you just discovered. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you write. You that we write, just barely discovered. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to leave. Uh, and then uh, something I, I don't understand this part. Uh, having bags made with our chitenge fabric. I don't. What is what is that? Yeah. Yeah, so the Chitenge fabric is just this beautiful African fabric, and I and I know it's available in other countries in Africa, um, but and it's actually got different names in different countries. But in Zambia, that's what they call it. And it's just beautiful fabric. If you think of like an African woman in a village, and she's got this wrap around her waist, that's the fabric we're talking about. So we we just wanted to have some gifts. You know, in my head, in my long-term plan, it's like, oh, I'm going to have a few months to buy gifts for people at my family and stuff. But um, we we just hurried and took it this fabric to the t- tailor and said, can you just make us, they're just like grocery bags, cloth bags. So I we had five, I had five made for giving gifts for when I came back. So, but it was, that was interesting too. Just our, our taxi driver came with us cause he spoke the, the language they speak in Kitway is Bemba and he spoke Bemba and he came with us and explained, they need these by noon tomorrow. You, you can't wait. So she agreed to make them for us by then. So mm. that was, it was crazy. So it's it's kind of weird, isn't it? Because this the you know we've had isolation, kind of forced isolation for for a time. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of reduced the interconnectedness. You know, you're in Zambia, but now because of the 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 pandemic, uh, you you need to go home, right? We all kind of go home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'm home going. Oh my gosh, how did I end up here? Yeah, this is crazy. <laughs> yeah, did I even go to? Zambia? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, so uh, tell us about, so uh, Peace Corps Zambia, 
you say has Toyota Land Cruisers. That's that's pretty good vehicle, mm-hmm. I guess, right? A very yeah. very hardy and sturdy. Um, so so tell us what unfolded next. You you went from a few people in there to being <laughs> totally crammed. It sounds like. <laughs> Yeah, so we were, so so there were people all over the country, but there were 10 of us, I guess it was, well, nine of us, 10 with the, the driver, that are were on this one highway. So we were the farthest north. That, my, my colleague Bex and I were the farthest north. So he came and picked us up. And so we have two huge suitcases. And, you know, they're trying to say, they're li- trying to limit you to 50 pounds per bag. And... Mine was way over. I don't even know how much it was, but it was way over. So we have two huge bags, plus we have stuff that we have to take back to the headquarters in Lusaka, like our computers and our printers. And then just, you know, I have a backpack and another little bag. So, the you know, when we first get in the car, we have the whole, just the three of us in the car, Bex and I and the driver. And then we get to the next town and we pick up two more people with their all their stuff as well. And then we get to the next town and we pick up three more people with all of their stuff. So by the time we got everybody in there, there were 10 people. And Peace Corps insists that you, everybody has a seatbelt. So there were 10 seatbelts. And um, all of our stuff. So we have a trailer. Well, you know, not, not a huge, huge trailer, but a pretty good-sized trailer, plus things on top of the, the vehicle. Ten of us plus all of our stuff in those two mm. Yeah, that's a, a, that's quite the deal, and all feeling fortunate you got a got a ride, right? Um, right, right. So it took you about eleven hours, you say. Um, there were stops, including police stops. Under understand from your description, this these are kind of, these are routine police stops. Yeah, that's so. Our our uh, taxi driver that we had in Kitwe was his name was Leonard, and he was man. I could ask him any question about Zambia, the history of Zambia, and he could he could answer it. And so we were talking to him about it. Why? Why are all these? You know, why? Why these stops? And he said mostly they're looking to make sure your car's registered, because it, you know they get taxes off of it. So that's mostly what they're looking for. I don't. Re- I mean, they're they're the police have guns there, but I never really felt scared or threatened or anything like that. So. Mm. Uh, so it was you, very routine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so then you make it to Lusaka. This is the main town, the, the capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Oh, by the way, Lusaka. How big a town? How big a city is that? I would say, you know, because I haven't really seen it from the air. I would say it's probably around the size of Salt Lake. Not the whole valley, but it's bigger than it's the largest city in Zambia. So what I saw of it, uh, you know, it's pretty big. Mm-hmm. Maybe about the size of Salt Lake. So you, you, the 10 of you made it, uh, but uh, Peace Corps is trying to get uh, more than 250 volunteers out of Zambia, right? So it must have been pretty chaotic. Right. It was, it was insane because the, typically what they want you to do, they have, call it close of service. Um, what they want you to do is they, they, want you to, they want to talk to you about health insurance because they give you a, a month of health insurance after you leave to just help you get back back on your feet and they give you a a stipend that you can either pay for school or you can do whatever you want with the money. You can travel with it. You can do whatever. Um, And then plus you have to turn in all your stuff and they want to keep track. You know, they know the number on my computer. They want to make sure that I'm giving that computer back. So there were, I think there were about 230 of us trying to do all that. Plus I had emptied my bank account because I didn't want to do it in Lusaka because I knew that would just be crazy there. And I was carrying around $500, which, you know, to us, that's a lot of money, but it's not unusual for someone to own $500 in this country. And there, it's a big deal. And I <laughs> I had to carry it, once we got to Lusaka, I had to carry it for about 24 hours before I could get to the cashier and say, please take this money. Mm-hmm. I do not want this money on my body anymore. So... It, but all of us were trying to do the same thing. Mm. All of us are trying to get out of there at the same time. By the way, you're right. And I the, didn't really, uh, I didn't know what when I was leaving. I, I just mm. kind of waited till they said, the car's coming to get you in one hour. Be ready. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I guess you got that money to get out. You, the, the logistics must have been quite the deal. Uh, by the way, that, crazy. that amount of money was, uh, I think you say 10,000 kwacha. Is that pronouncing that right? Kwacha, yeah. Their, yeah. Their, their money, yeah. So, in any case, more money than you wanted on you. Um, yeah. So then, uh, leaving Lusaka, where do you go next? 
So we get to the airport, and the airport is just crazy. Everybody's trying to get out. Um, we ended up, I ended up sitting next to a man that was a EMT from Great Britain, and they had been there doing some some military. He was a military guy, and they had been doing some military things, practices with the Zambian soldiers, and they were leaving like four weeks early. So. I mean, there were just all kinds of people trying to leave the country. South Africa was closing their borders, so that was part of it. So from Lusaka, we flew to Harare, Zimbabwe, and a few people got off the airplane. It was about a two-hour flight. A few people got off the airplane. A few people came back on, but mostly we just, you know, most of us stayed on the airplane. Then we flew to Adababas, Ethiopia, and we changed planes there. And they checked our temperatures there. They asked us all kinds of questions. And then from there, we went to Dublin, Ireland. They made everybody stay on the airplane. The new crew, new, you know, they refueled all that. And then to Dulles. And then from Dulles to Denver to Salt Lake. Mm. What was the attitude on on some of these flights? Was it, did it feel normal? Did people, were people nervous about COVID or did, what was the, what was the feeling on some of these flights? Um, I would say it was a combination of things. There, there. Uh, so we flew Air Ethiopia, I think it was called, um, and they have free alcohol. So there were people that were drinking a lot of alcohol. There were people that were in masks and gloves and obviously very tense. There were people that were sleeping. Um, I started out with a mask, and then I thought, huh. Am I going to do this for 36 hours? So I ended up taking my mask off and not wearing it on the airplane. And I I guess that was an okay thing to do since I didn't get COVID. But, um, you know, it was, it was a wide variety of reactions to the, to the whole thing. Um, there, there were people that were drinking pretty heavily. I don't know if they were nervous or they were just, yahoo, we're going home, or what they were doing. Uh, was it mostly? I, I I would imagine that that this time frame it probably wasn't routine flights. It was a lot of people heading home before borders yeah. closed. I'm I'm not a hundred percent certain about this, but I think it might. It wasn't a chartered flight. I know there were some countries that Peace Corps had to get some chartered flights. Um, I don't think this was a chartered flight, but I I got the impression that it wasn't the normal airplane that they would have flown. It was a pretty big airplane. And when we flew into Zambia, we flew from Johannesburg to Lusaka, and it was just on a little puddle jumper, you know, maybe, I don't know, 40 people on the plane. Um, so this was a huge airplane, 350 people maybe. And so it seemed like they brought they had brought in a bigger airplane. Mm. But I, I'm not sure about that. But it was it was packed. There was not one empty seat on that airplane. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour is Barbara Ferris. Uh, she is a Cache Valley resident, a retired health education teacher. Till March of this year, she was in Zambia with the Peace Corps Dreams program. Then, of course, the coronavirus pandemic uh, began. And uh, she's telling us her story of uh, leaving Zambia, returning to the United States. And uh, we'll talk as well about the situation in Zambia. More following this. I'm Katie Swain, the Director of Membership at Utah Public Radio, and I'm so happy to report that thanks to so many of you, we've reached and even exceeded our $55,000 fundraising goal for this spring. Even in these extraordinary times, you showed us just how strong the UPR community is. We're so grateful to all of you who gave, whether that was by increasing a sustaining gift, renewing an annual donation, or making an additional contribution. Thank you for stepping up when we needed you. And a very special thank you to all of you who donated this spring for the very first time and became not just a listener but a member and a part of what makes everything you hear possible. On behalf of all of us here at UPR, thank you. We simply couldn't do it without you. You make the future of public radio bright. This is a one-minute preview of Episode 6 of Debunked. I'm Tim Light, and I'm joined by Michelle Chapoose and Dr. Aaron Fanning Madden. The myth we're debunking today in one minute is Native Americans have a genetic predisposition to addiction. You know, you look at the myth itself being so impactful. You know, we hear something, you hear it enough, and then you begin to believe what it is. You begin to believe that that's your destiny, in a sense. And in order for any community or any individual to take back that identity, they've got to challenge these concepts. They have got to break these beliefs. How powerful to know that this is not real, that this whole you're genetically predisposed is not true. That's power. 
There are other things besides genetics that cause addiction to happen in someone's life. You may or may not have genetic markers for addiction, but those do not fall along racial lines. Join us for the full debunking of this myth on episode six of Debunked. You can find the episode on the podcast app, upr.org, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Don Gomes and Tori. I listen to Utah Public Radio at 94.5. Tory may be far from some areas of Utah, but Utah Public Radio keeps us in touch with a window on the world. It's like we're right next door. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, my guest is Barbara Ferris. She's a retired health education teacher, lives in Cache Valley. Until March of this year, she was in Zambia with the Peace Corps Dreams Program. And she's talking about her time in Africa, her adventure leaving Zambia and returning to the U.S. when the coronavirus pandemic began, her concerns for her friends in Zambia. Barbara Ferris is back home now out of quarantine, and we're talking about, uh, among other things, culture and the current situation in Zambia. Now, you do uh, say that when you uh, flew to, to Denver, uh, so for Dulles to, to Denver, that, that plane's about half full. You could already see maybe some effects. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of, of the pandemic, yeah. And yeah. and back in back in Zambia, maybe already seeing you know some effects and and hitting the economy. Yeah, it was it was really tough. And I know that my colleagues that I went with, who have kind of kept in touch closer with specific people in Zambia, I had to get a different phone in Zambia, and so it doesn't work here. So probably I have been getting some text, but I, I can't make it work, so I don't know what I'm getting. But the the people that we met are starting to ask for money, because there's nothing. Like our, our taxi driver, his job was a ta- being a taxi driver, and there's nobody to drive around. So I know they're just really hurting for money. Mm-hmm. And uh, no no social safety net in, in Zambia, to speak of, I guess. Mm, no, nothing other than you know, universal health care. Yeah. So, well, but no, no money, no unemployment. Isn't that kind of ironic? Universal health care in Zambia, not so yeah. much in the U.S. Yeah. 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 Um, so, um, so you get to, I hadn't thought this detail through. When you get to Salt Lake, you had some friends that uh, drove your car up. But you didn't you didn't drive back with them. You so you were already already having to quarantine, right? You have to think these things yeah. through. Yeah. So a friend of mine came up and got my car out of my garage and I the funny part is is I had like I don't know, two or three days before I knew I was being evacuated, I was checking my bank account and my insurance company had charged me full amount for car insurance and I had before I left, I had talked to them about, well, it's not going to go anywhere. And so they said, okay, it'll be $100 a year, but you cannot drive it on the roads. You can, it, it just is, if, you're, if your house burns down and your car's in your garage, it'll cover your car. So I had, I had made that arrangement before I left. And when I got looking at my bank account, um, I noticed that they had charged me the full amount. So I called the insurance company and said, you know, this is the deal we agreed on. And she had just changed my car insurance. And so I had to call him back and say, ah, just kidding. I need full coverage again. So um, so my friend came up and got the car, and they met me at the airport. And, you know, 12 feet away, she's waving at me. I, she's my best friend since I was 14. I couldn't even give her a hug or anything. Yeah, because that was the start of quarantining. Mm. By the way, you, you write, uh, just a paragraph here, that... Uh you didn't experience the, the 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 missionary craziness at the airport. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is about the the time frame when um, even though you know we had uh, the pandemic, that uh, large groups were 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 at the airport uh, welcoming as they would do in normal times uh, missionaries returning from their missions for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Yeah. In fact, I think it happened that morning. I, I arrived in Salt Lake at about 8 o'clock on March 21st, and I think it had happened that morning where people were saying, what are you people doing? <laughs> this is a problem. You have missionaries coming from other countries. So, um, yeah, So, but I missed all that. It, the airport was really, really quiet at 8 o'clock at night. It mm-hmm. was, there was hardly anybody in there. Yeah. 
so uh, by the time you got home, you say you'd been traveling for 34 hours plus a nine-hour time difference. You, you must have been exhausted. Yeah. yeah. And you, I, go, you go immediately I, it, into quarantine. I, that must have been kind of weird. It was really weird, and I, I didn't... I didn't think through it. I, you know, I knew I was going to go into quarantine. I knew that was really important. But on the way driving home from Salt Lake, I needed to use the restroom. And I just walked into the Flying J, talked to the guy at the cash register, and didn't even put it together until a couple of days later. And went, oh, wow, I was supposed to be in quarantine. Oh, I hope I don't, you know. Then I kind of go into panic because, oh, my gosh, what if I haven't? And I've given it to this guy. But... He didn't seem too worried, yeah. and I, I literally didn't even think about it. Hmm. I was I was tired, I think. Yeah, and that's and it was kind of just at the beginning of the of everything, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I want to uh, talk about some of the the folks. Uh, have you talk about some of the folks you met in Zambia? But first of all, um, so you're obviously through your quarantine at this point. Uh huh. Yep. Uh, so how how are things for you now? Good. I'm really glad I live here. Well, I was until maybe a couple of weeks ago. I it's just been it's been pretty good. I I go out every day and I'm out on the trails and I kind of figured out some trails that I'm not going to run into too many people, just trying to keep everybody safe. I, I mean, for a couple of weeks after I was even out of quarantine, I was worried that I might be asymptomatic, and so I was really careful about who I talked to and where I went and always wore a mask. Um, and then I, the Peace Corps, uh, you were into service thing. They want you to have your teeth cleaned. And normally they would do this in, in country. They want you to have a complete physical and have your teeth cleaned. And so I had to do that here. And the doctor I saw said, hmm, it'd be kind of interesting if you got an antibody test. So I went to Sterling Medical and had an antibody test, and it came back negative. So I, I don't think I was exposed to it anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, there. We hear there are some cases that are asymptomatic, so that's that's interesting. Um, so I'd like to um, just a few minutes left of the conversation. I'd like to talk about uh, some of the folks you met and befriended in, in Zambia. Maybe let's start with your taxi driver Leonard. Tell us a little bit more about him. He was he was so cute, uh, and he was just the nicest man. Um, he had been the taxi driver for the Peace Corps response person before us. And so he knew where all the schools were. So um, another man that we we met was Shadrick. He was the the school district. They call them guidance teachers instead of guidance counselors. That's what we would call them here. So Shadrick was sort of our liaison with this school district. And so he and Shadrick would, like, have this little talk about which schools we were going to go visit that day. And I am so glad they knew where they were because, holy cow, I, they, they drove us all over that city. And I just, I couldn't tell you where we were half of the time. But he was, oh, I don't know, I think he was in his mid-40s and he had a few children. And he, I think he was the sole earner in their family. And so, and, and so he, it was really important for him to work. And he was really interested in making sure his children were educated. He was telling me about his daughter, how she would study late into the night, and he would finally have to tell her to go to bed. So um, he was just fascinating to talk to. We were talking about, the, of course, the history of Zambia, and they had just hit their 50-year independence from Great Britain. So he would tell us a little bit about that. They have two national holidays in March. One is International Women's Day, and then the, that was a, like on a Tuesday, I think, and everything shuts down. Everything shuts down. And then a couple of days later, they have the National Youth Day, and the same thing, everything shut down. So we hardly even worked that week because there were these national holidays. But he gave us a little bit of history of those, and um, it, was just, it was just really fun, fun to talk to him. Uh, I'm a runner, and I... Near my house was a power line, big power line, and it had a dirt road underneath it. And I said to him, can I run down there? And he said, no. Like, he didn't even hesitate. He said, no. And then he, he said, I said, because animals or people? And he said, people. And, he, and then he said, well, after the rainy season, when they cut the grass, then you'll be safe to run down there. I thought, okay. So he was my... Mm 
person that I would say, is it okay if I go here? Is it okay if I go there? And he would say yes or no, and I would just do whatever he told me to do. By the way, uh, you mentioned earlier in our discussion that you had a taxi driver. You weren't allowed to drive because, uh, I, I guess, the Peace Corps had uh, experience with fatalities? Uh-huh. The people driving themselves? In its hi- yeah, in its history. You know, people on scooters, motor scooters. And so you you can ride a bike, but you cannot use any motorized vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's true worldwide. That's oh, not I just see. Zambia. A uh, uh, worldwide yeah. Peace Corps rule. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, others you'd like to, to mention? Any Anybody else you'd like to mention that you, you befriended in Zambia? So we were at one school, and I can't remember the name of it right off the top of my head, but we met one of the teachers, and her name is Carol. And um, she was an amazing young woman. She taught, um, I think it was home economics, and so she was very involved with the comprehensive sex education. But they also do, with, with this DREAMS program, they do, they call them GLOW and BRO clubs. GLOW stands for Girls Leading Our World, and then BRO is Boys Respecting Others. And so what they do with these kids is they teach them comprehensive sex education stuff. They teach them um, about dating violence. And that what they'll do is they'll take two kids, and, and this was one of the things we were going to do probably co- this coming August that we obviously didn't get a chance to do, but um, they take two kids from each school, and then those kids make these clubs at their schools. Well, Carol was the teacher that was in charge of the Glow Club at her school, and she was so enthusiastic and so smart and those girls you could tell the girls just loved her she was just they they were just having so much fun and she would she she gave she had a lesson one day when we were visiting and just the the, you could tell that the girls really respected her and that she respected them and they were just having so much fun with this little program they were doing after school so this is a woman that had taught all day and their class sizes are 60 to 70 students which I thought I would never complain about having 35 students, but 35 is too many as well. But um, so she's teaching all day, doing all that, and then she's staying after school to do this glow club. And it was pretty remarkable. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, we we were in charge of 32 schools, and we had only met 26 of the head teachers. That's the principal of the school. So we were just barely getting started. So we really didn't do much other than try and meet people. So that was kind of frustrating. Yeah, sort of a beginning, and then you're and then you're done. Um, yeah. Are, are there, um, it's always interesting to, to learn customs and, and, and the like. Any uh, customs or traditions in Zambia that you particularly enjoyed? Uh, I love food. So food was really interesting to me, um, and just the whole culture around food. They... Um, do their, the one of their main food things is this food called shima, which is basically it's kind of like polenta is the best way to describe it. And um, that what you would do is, and you eat with your right hand, um, you would get a little ball of shima and then put whatever other food with it that you wanted, and then that you'd kind of use the shima as kind of kind of like a spoon and then eat it. So I thought that was kind of a fun little custom because I, I like eating, and I like eating with my hands, so it was really fun. I, I feel like I just barely scratched the surface. I was just kind of figuring everything out, and then all of a sudden, oh, yay, we're going home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I was telling one of my friends literally about two or three days before we were we got the news that we were being evacuated. I was walking up to my flat, and I'm thinking, okay, this feels like home finally. I know where things are. I know how to get different places, and I I I I was starting to meet the neighbors, and they were getting used to me. You know, I was the only white person around there, so I I really stuck out. But people were so nice. And if you got lost or confused, they would help you. So, now you have. I, I just really liked it. You have a. I understand you have an opportunity to, you know, the Peace Corps would take you back, I guess. Um, but right now, no can do, I, I suspect. 
Yeah, so they just sent out, and I actually haven't even looked at it because it just came a couple of days ago, uh, an email. They're they're giving um, priority to to people like us that were evacuated. Um, to, so I I'm I'm going to sign up to go back. I'm not really sure that's going to happen. I, I I'll have to wait and see because it kind of depends on how long this goes, and uh, you know, I'm, my life's a little bit on hold right now because I. Because I'm, because everybody's life's on hold, but but I did decide I would try that I would sign up to go back, just to kind of leave my options open. Um, I felt like I didn't do what I was supposed to do while I was there, but um, so they they are giving us priority. Mm-hmm. So I think our our application process again would be expedited. We it, it's quite an extensive um, application process. Mm-hmm. It's. It, it was pretty it, amazing. I, I it kind of floored me. I didn't expect it to be so hard. I guess they have to. The, a lot of hoops they have to jump through, right? They have to take precautions. Yes. Yeah. 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 And they're they they're. I don't know what stimulated this, but it seems like they're very interested in people's mental health as well as their physical health. So there's a lot of mental health stuff that you have to talk about hoop jumping, but. I understand because it's it's you are far away from the people you love, and you can't just run home for a minute. Yeah, so that is interesting. But but yeah, as you say, understandable. Uh, so we just have a couple minutes left. Um, maybe the you know the folks you still keep in touch with, the folks you befriended uh, there, and your your time in Zambia. Uh, you you expressed earlier you're, you're worried about them. The the economy is must be taking a hit. Yeah, I when we had some people from USAID come and speak to us in our, during our training, and the the woman said what the unemployment rate was, and this is back in February, the beginning of February, before all the COVID craziness happened, and I I thought, what did she say? And so afterwards, I said to my colleagues, did she say the unemployment rate is eighty percent? And she they all said, yeah, she said eighty percent. So that was before all this craziness happened. So it's it's really it's it's bad in, in Zambia. I can't talk speak to other countries, but um, I just can't imagine what's happened since. I know that um, the two people that ran our program, our Dreams program, they are still employed. They were very worried because you know everybody's leaving. But at this point, they're still employed, and it sounds like they're doing really well. Um, the the oh my gosh, I lost his name. Grace is the is the woman that we worked with the most. Um, oh, Moffat is the the director's name of the Dreams Program in Zambia, and he's the one I've kept in contact with mostly. And he sounds like he's doing okay for now, and it sounds like the employees at, with with Peace Corps are still doing okay. So we're, they're just kind of in a holding pattern like the rest of us. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating story. Glad you're, glad you're well. Glad at least some of the people keep in talk, contact there in Zambia doing well at this point. Um, and I very much appreciate you telling us your story. Yeah, thank you for having me tell it. It was, it was quite an interesting couple of months for me. Yeah, right. And, and the, <laughs> the adventure continues for us all, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you. Okay, thank you, Tom. We've been talking with Barbara Ferris, who's a retired health education teacher who lives in Cache Valley. And until March of this year, she was in Zambia with the Peace Corps Dreams program. Uh, Coming up uh, tomorrow on Access Utah, hope you'll uh, join me as we talk about a new podcast we're excited about. I'm a co-host of this uh, podcast. We'll be talking with executive producer Patrick Mason, who's with Utah State University, and Naomi Watkins, our uh, co-host. It's called This Is Her Place. It's a new podcast that tells the remarkable stories of Utah women, past and present, and all their diversity. We'll hear sound clips from the first two episodes, which are on law enforcement and public health. Very timely uh, episodes. Uh, that's tomorrow on the program. Hope you join us then. Thanks for listening today. You know me as a no-frills home cook. Just listen to me rave about leftovers or two-ingredient dishes. So this may come as a curveball. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. 
In the last few months, I have come to respect the power of the drizzle. Take that bowl of oatmeal. There it is. That whole bowl of oatmeal. Just staring at you. It has its appeal. Comforting whole grains, quick and simple to prepare, but it's beige. The dull yet ever-present ant of the color family. On top of the drab hue, oatmeal is one note in its flavor profile, which I guess is unflavored, or for a positive spin, ready for layering. Within the power of the drizzle, we can add syrups and glazes, as well as stir-ins, sprinkles, and dustings, pulling from the cupboard an array of nuts, morsels, seeds, sugars, and spices. That ho-hum oatmeal appointment suddenly becomes a star-studded event once you stir in a few chocolate chips, chopped almonds, and toasted coconut. And don't forget a thin drizzle of Hershey's syrup over all for the win. While dressing up oatmeal isn't anything new, what I've come to appreciate is how small additions to many other meals or snacks can make all the difference in the satisfaction factor. When I was handcuffed by insidious diet culture, I tried to be content with the bare minimum, choking down dry toast, butterless popcorn, and lonely carrot sticks, telling myself this is just what health looks like. I couldn't have been more wrong. After dutifully polishing the plate, I'd find myself rifling through the pantry, searching for something. The self-imposed limitation just didn't provide the crunch, flavor, or melted goodness that takes you from no longer hungry to fully satisfied. Dietitians and other professionals working with the latest evidence recommend a more balanced approach. Utah-based nutrition therapist Emily Fonsbeck promotes nourishment plus satisfaction. For instance, steamed broccoli stirred with butter and sprinkled with freshly grated Parmesan cheese can be both nourishing and satisfying. Take another combo. Avocado toast became an it couple a few years ago, and it's a great start. Asking, what can I add, takes the pair to another level, welcoming creativity and a sense of luxury. Just search avocado toast toppings online. The blogging mavens get nourishment plus satisfaction. That's how their photos make us salivate and scroll for more. I'm excited to add blueberries and goat cheese with a drizzle of honey or smoked salmon and chives. For easy answers to what can I add, I filled several see-through containers and placed them near the spice rack. Chopped nuts, dried fruits, so many types of seeds you'd think were starting a bird feeder, honey, balsamic glaze, our favorite granola, in the fridge, several cheeses and dips won prime real estate right at the front. Of course, ideas for stir-ins and drizzles abound, and you get to be the judge. What can you add to make that yogurt, sandwich, or pasta nourishing and satisfying? When I posed this question to my six-year-old, contemplating a grim slice of whole wheat toast, he searched his own preferences, as well as the pantry, and came up with cream cheese, sliced bananas, and a drizzle of agave syrup for a simple reason. It tastes gooder that way. It seems kids can get nourishment plus satisfaction too. This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.